RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Jim DeVico. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 377 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report from the Star Trek multiverse, recorded during the 2018 Las Vegas Star Trek convention, and available for download or streaming on Friday, August 10th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. And I'm Anthony. All right, Anthony. It's part two of our big STLV coverage, and, buddy, we missed you. <laughs> and, as I just told you before we started recording, we had a lot of people asking about where you were, where new Tony was. <laughs> that's uh, that's really great to hear. Um, I was very jealous uh, of everybody attending, and I will definitely be there next year, so I hope to see everyone who was asking about me then. I hope so, man. Well, why don't you tell us what we've got coming up? Well, this week, we're continuing our coverage from STLV with additional interviews with various guests. First up, Elijah and Kenna chat with Eagle Moss project manager Ben Robinson and special guest Mike Okuda. Up next, we continue our artistic discussions with Star Trek Online's lead ship designer Thomas Maroney, environment artist Nick Dugid, content designer Ryan Levitt, and graphic designer Tim Suricata-Davies. Last, but certainly not least, we are honored to sit down with two Star Trek favorites. Andrew Robinson, who plays Elam Garrick on Deep Space Nine, followed by a post-panel interview with Cadet Tilly herself, Mary Weissman. Captains, we may not be including feedback in these couple of episodes, but those hailing frequencies are always open, and you know that we love to hear from you between these episodes. So please, reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter at Priority One. You can send us an email via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. And we've just launched an Instagram account Woo-hoo! over at Instagram.com forward slash Priority One Pod. Thanks again to all our Patreon supporters, old and new, who make this show possible from week to week. This month, we welcome an old friend of the show, SFC, and also thanks to Matt B. for increasing his patronage. Because of patron support, the servers stay on, the power keeps flowing, and the team keeps producing. Help us improve the show by considering a financial contribution via our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash priority one. And as grateful as we are for our patrons, we also need to take a moment to thank the volunteers that have made this year at Star Trek Las Vegas another incredible success. First, to Henry Pomper for donating several t-shirts that were handed out to listeners and fans of the show. And, most importantly, 
for his hashtag silly for Tilly t-shirt that has made a remarkable splash on social media. Second to the team at home that helped with audio editing and social media support. Audio editors, Brandon Parker, Jake Morgan, Anthony Cox, James Skifter, Ben Churchill, and of course, Michael Winters McDonald. Without their help, we could not have turned around the show to you as quickly as we had. Thank you so very much, team. Now, let's check out more amazing content from STLV 2018. I don't know. Then let's check it out. Captains, we are still here in Las Vegas for the 2018 Star Trek convention, and joining us for this interview is the man behind Eagle Moss, Ben Robinson. Thank you so very much for joining us, Ben. It's a pleasure. And none other than the legendary Michael Okuda. Thank you so very much for joining us, Mr. Okuda. Thank you for having me here. So, you know, one of the reasons that we wanted to get you two together for an interview is, you know, Ben, you are producing some phenomenal content with Starships. Um, and who better to also comment on these things than Mr. Okuda himself. So you were just over at the booth. Mr. Okuda, why you, can you tell us some of your first impressions as to what you've seen Eagle Moss produce? I am in continually delighted with what Eagle Moss is doing. Not only are they making beautiful replicas of some of the classic familiar ships, but they're doing these amazing deep dives into Star Trek history. So you have alien guest ships of the week. You have var variations. You have things that are so geeky that I'm, I'm amazed that anybody knows. But I'm going, wow, this is cool. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, they recently did, uh, um, Rick Sternbach did this quite lovely study model of Voyager that was brutally rejected. And they've uh, lovingly recreated. And I'm going, oh, the model hung around in the art department for years. And I'm going, as much as the the final Voyager turned out to be uh, really quite lovely. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of things about that original study model that I'm going, gosh, I wish they had done. And now you are producing the study model? Yeah, well, the, the thing that's nice about that is that actually we work with Rick to finish it. So, you know, Rick, Rick built a study model, but it wasn't finished. So Fabio, who's one of our 3D modelers, actually sort of worked through it with Rick and they made decisions about what should be where and actually finished it off. Now, I have a question about something like that. So we've talked on our show about the, the teeny tiny starships before and how they come with a, a, a brochure of information that's in there. When you've got a model that's like that, that's never really seen the light of day, for instance, what kind of information are you putting in the brochure that comes with it? Well, this is where people like Mike are an enormous help to us. So there's always a story mm -hmm. behind anything. And in that case, the story is... 80% of the story is the same as the designing Voyager. It's like, you know, it got to this point and then Jerry Taylor said, can you make it curvier? And then it went off in a direction. So that story stays the same, but then we talked to Rick about how you take a model from that point to being finished, and which is pretty much what we did. And one of the things I really enjoy about, you know, getting to write about Star Trek it's not just about Star Trek, it's about how you make a TV show or how you make a movie. And the fun thing is that Star Trek fans are so in tune, they know so much, mm -hmm. that even this really obscure piece of background history, they know about this stuff. And, and they share in the delight of going, oh, this is what could have been. You know, this is, mm -hmm. it's, it's good in the air, these areas, maybe it's not so good in, in those other areas, but it's a, it's a piece of Star, uh, Star Trek history that they thought they'd never see. And, and yet here it is. So I'm going to have to ask, and I might be putting you on the hot seat here. Do you subscribe to Eagle Moss ships? 
Have you I've, been receiving them? I have been receiving them. I get these boxes in the mail and I tear them open and I play with them. And uh, <laughs> When you're reading the pamphlets, the magazines that come with the ships, have you come across anything that you even you go, oh, I didn't know that? Well, of course, there's always things because there's the nature of television production is, is such that you're, you're always running in 17 different directions and you never have the energy and the attention span to, to focus on every single thing you want to. Right. So you go, oh, I didn't know Rick did that or I didn't know John Eves did this or, uh, or I, I had forgotten that this is what Andy Perbert wanted to do. Right. So, right. so those, uh, the magazines that come with the ships, they're a fascinating historical document. Yeah. The, the other thing you find with that is that there's no reason for people to know stuff at the time. When you're working on a show, the art department doesn't need to know that the writer had to cut the scene because something else happened and they wrote this to Phil or that he had a particular inspiration. It's, you know, not everybody didn't all get to sit down in a big room and uh, talk to one another about everything. You're too busy working. Right, right, right. That, that's very true. There are any number of times you, you do something and it doesn't show up in the air and you go, well, what happened? The other thing, just talking about like the ships that no one knows about or saw, this is where Mike and Rick, again, were enormously helpful, is the ships from Wolf 359. Mm. So right. because... You know, if we'd had to do that based on what turned up on screen. <laughs> oh, you, uh, you had ships that were worth four pixels high. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about that. So there, it's, a, it's a new line of ships from Wolf 359. No, no. We've done them, oh. sorted them in throughout yeah. the collection. Oh, okay. So, okay. you know, to show how obscure we are, we do the things that were a few pixels wide. Right. But right. Mike and Rick had the, you know, well, you can tell the story. They had this idea of trying to get new ships into TNG. And oh. it was... Yeah, well, the thing is that in the original series, of course, they basically had no other ships other than the Enterprise. We, you you kind of saw a few ships, and you saw some blobs of light, and a couple times they used the AMT kits. But it was a miracle they got any ships on, on the screen, much less a guest ship. When it came time to the next generation, we had the huge benefit that there had already been a few Star Trek movies. So we had the Reliant and the Excelsior and the Grissom. So when we needed a guest ship, these multiple tens of thousands of dollars models, hundreds of thousands of dollars models existed. So we could use them and they'd add enormous production value. But after a certain amount of time you go, well, all the ships look like the Reliant and the Excelsior and the Grissom. So Sternbach and I said, you know, the Enterprise D is so distinctively different. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be nice if we could get ships that were a cousin of, uh, of the ship that had at least a sense of the design aesthetic that Andy Probert brought to the uh, to uh, to the Enterprise D. And th there were a lot of problems in doing that. For one thing, the Enterprise D had these compound ellipses, which were very, very difficult for fabrication. So what Sternbach and I did is we, we kitbashed a bunch of things, or we started to kitbash. We never really got very far. And then we asked um, our friend, a model maker, uh, Ed Myrecki, to see could he kitbash a number of ships to act as study models, as, as concepts for what could you do by rearranging the Enterprise D components. And one of them said, well, let's put the, the nacelles under the saucer like the Reliant. Let's stretch out the engines like they did on an XLC. A bunch of other variations. Ed came up with a bunch of those, and we kept them in the artwork, just waiting for the moment where the producers would say, we want a new ship. And we'd say, here, why don't we do this? Mm. And that's exactly what we did with the Nebula-class ship in, um, in The Wounded. But we also had the famous spaceship graveyard scene from Wolf, uh, Wolf 359, this Best of World, Worlds Part 2 where uh, the visual effects uh, team, they just needed a bunch of ships. So 
we grabbed the uh, uh, the study models, and I had a Dremel tool up in the art department, and we just hacked and slashed <laughs> yeah. it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, did, uh, Rick did, did some battle damage paint on it. And those were among the the ships that were that were floating in the in the detritus, the jetsam and flotsam of the of the Starfleet. But I, thank no, God you took some photographs first. <laughs> right now, have you thought about doing battle damage, like, or, or uh, rather, I, are any of these battle damage? Uh, we've we've never done battle damage because I have a problem, a, a personal problem with battle damage. Oh, really? Which is which is that people do it when they are cynical and trying to get out another version of something uh, and they just take a, like a, a scorch mark transfer and they put it on the ship they've already got and that, for that, me that's not the case here we, we, exactly, we lovingly really it we, lev we lovingly <laughs> applied that battle damage Sternbach and I were uh, we were grimly determined to make this look interestingly detailedly damaged Patrick Stewart was shooting second unit on, at that time at that time remember this is before cell phones mm -hmm. they came up to the art department and said uh, may I use your telephone? Of course. And then he said, he looks over our shoulders and goes, oh, "What are you doing?" And we're we're hacking at slashing at the, at these ships. And he says, "What are you doing?" And I said, "You did this." <laughs> <laughs> but what I was going to say is, for for models, I mean, obviously, in in the show, you have to have battle damage ships right. and all that. Yeah. But if you make a model of it, you ought to do it properly. So it ought to have little bits of deck showing and. You know, proper hole that goes all the way through it, not just a, a transfer. On we, the did top, right. we did that. Which is exactly which is what we need to do. Right. right. And for us, that actually means making a whole new tool. Mm. So you can't cheat. It's like it's a completely different chip. It has a completely different uh, manufacturing process. So we can do it, but I I really res and and there are also challenges in diecast at that size to show that kind of and lots of undercuts. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The factory hates it for all sorts of reasons. So we've always held back from doing it until we could do it properly. Right. So, and again, this is, again, you cause problems. So in the original series... We like to make trouble for... Yeah, uh, in the original series, when the Constellation's going into the Doomsday Machine, it's just like someone's taken a lighter to the cell, uh, and the source is just a little bit kind of scuffed and dirty. In the remastered, it has deck showing, it has... Nice I, damage. I spent two days drawing that. I, I, I gave them detailed reference photographs of the uh, of the damaged models that uh, ILM made for Star Trek Three. Yeah, there's a yeah, lot of stuff. You made it nice. Uh, you made it nice. <laughs> they made it nice. I I, I, I kibitzed a lot. So Ben, what's uh, what's coming up for Eagle Moss? Uh, what's coming up? Well, Discovery, right? An unnamed series starring Patrick Stewart. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Discovery in particular is being a real pleasure. It's really nice to see a lot of new designs. We get the visual effects models, so I, you know, we know what they look like much more than anyone who's just been watching the show, mm -hmm. which again, that's true of the Wolf 359 ships as well. But it's, you know, I, particularly people are very uh, sniffy, I think, about the, the Klingon ships, but when you see the models, when you actually hold them in your hand, you realize what good designs they are and how strong they are. Right. So that's the big focus and the big pleasure at the moment. Now, you've also released several ships from Battlestar Galactica, which oh, yeah. look stunning, stunning. And anybody who listens to, you know, to Priority One and watches Star Trek has probably, you know, watched Battlestar Galactica, at least the, the remake. Yeah, um, and if they haven't, they should. And if they haven't, they should. Mike, are you a fan of Battlestar? Absolutely. The original Galactica was groundbreaking. If you look at the visual effects in the re, in the remaster, or the excuse me, the uh, the reboot Galactica, are some of the finest space scenes ever done for television. Yes, yeah. yes. and done by Star Trek people. Right, right, right. Well, uh, visual, visual effects, uh, visual effects legend 
uh, the late, great Gary Hutzel, um, and his amazing team, including Doug Drexler. So remind everyone again how they can get access to Eagle Moss ships and what the subscription's like. Uh, so there are various different options for subscription. So you can subscribe to the mainline. Uh, you can subscribe to the, the XL ships, which are the bigger ones we've been doing, which seem to be going down very well. Uh, Those are beautiful. And our line. original series enterprise for that line is the nicest thing I have ever been responsible for, I have to say. And there's a separate subscription for Discovery as well and for Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, nice, nice. So, and all of that is, uh, you guys are very kindly sponsored, you know, bring shout out for us all the time. But if you go to shop.eaglemoss.com, you can buy anything you want. There's a ton of stuff now. And we're looking into doing shelves because people seem to need somewhere to put their ships. Yeah, right, 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 right. And Mr. Kuda, what are you up to nowadays? You just released the update to the encyclopedia, no? Well, Denise and I wrote the first update to the Star Trek encyclopedia in 17 years. It actually came out a little, a little while ago. I just finished working on a feature film for Warner. Oh. Uh, actually, I didn't have a lot to do with it, but it's a film directed and starring uh, Clint Eastwood called The Mule. Oh, wow. It's not okay. science fiction. Eastwood is an amazing filmmaker, so to, to get to work with that team is, uh, is, is always a thrill. Right. In the past year, another Eastwood film, The 1517 to Paris, a film produced by our friend uh, Roger Lay, uh, Aliens Ate My Homework. Okay. So, well, lots of fun stuff. Excellent, excellent. Well, gentlemen, thank you so very much for stopping by. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to discuss before we let you go? I was only going to say that I am finally going to get to go to see the, the sets in Ticonderoga next month. Oh, we were just there. I, I was just what there. What did you think of Ticonderoga? I'll put it to you this way. Star Trek Las Vegas is great. You have to go to Ticonderoga. That's what we've been telling all our friends. Yes. I mean, when you walk in there, it's a spiritual experience is really what it boils down to. We'll be up there again for Trek Conderoga uh, oh, later we'll this you, month. We'll yes, excellent, then. excellent. Because when people, I, I think the, the, the impression is you walk in and it's a replica of the Enterprise set. Yes, there's, but, but it's more than that. It is a replica of the set, right, of the working set. It, they're doing their best to recreate what was seen and how the actors acted on it. So, yeah, it's, it was a marvelous experience, and I'm looking forward to doing it again yeah, uh, I've been, in August. I've been really keen to go for a long Are you, time. You should, go, you should go, go for Trek on the Road. Well, I'm going to go um, up after New York Comic Con. Okay, so. good, 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 good. I'm glad. So you'll be at New York Comic Con again this we year? We will. We'll be at New York Comic Con, and uh, for Europeans, we'll be at Destination Star Trek in Birmingham. Wonderful, wonderful, yeah, wonderful. Come and say hi. We're always pleased to see people. Awesome. Any convention exclusives? It's here, but it will be in New York and in Birmingham as well. So we've done uh, the USS Glenn as opposed to the USS Discovery. Okay. So this is something we've been looking at, doing very limited numbers, like 500 didn't want to do any ship designs that would only be available at conventions because we have a lot of dedicated subscribers but the idea of doing ships that are basically the same but with different registries with different markings is something that we're doing actually also I have to say the thing I am happiest with is we've made a little tardigrade oh, yeah. as a gift for the uh, Discovery subscribers oh. and it's just the best thing I've done in ages it just makes me laugh it's <laughs> awesome well, gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining us in this episode. Mike, we'll see you in uh, Trek Conderoga. We'll see you at New York City Comic Con, Ben. Be there. All right. Look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Security clearance level three or above is required to access files. This is Captain Benjamin Sisko. Authorization Sisko Alpha One Alpha. Logs accessed. And captains, we are still here in Star Trek Las Vegas for the 2018 Star Trek convention right here at the Roddenberry Monolith in the Vendor Hall. Joining us for this interview is Star Trek Online's lead ship and UI artist, Thomas the Cryptic Cat Maroney. Hey guys, it's uh, great to be back. It's always a privilege to be on Priority One, and I just want to say thanks 
for coming out to the convention, covering everything going on with Star Trek Online and Star Trek at Large. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's great working with you guys. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the panel tomorrow. And speaking of panels, uh, you, sir, have been quite busy this week. Why don't you tell us a little bit about all the stuff you've done? Yeah, it's actually been a lot of fun. Um, this is the most panels I've ever been on um, in a, at an STLV. Uh, by the end of the weekend, I will have done five panels. Uh, I started off with a Star Trek Gamers and their games panel, along with... Uh, um, representatives from Star Trek adversaries and Star Trek timelines and we just talked about how important it is to know and love Star Trek when you're making a game for Star Trek fans then I was able to do a panel with Anovos and uh, Eagle Moss and Hallmark and we talked about building ships and that was really cool representing Star Trek Online on that panel because we got to focus on how, how uh, many new original ships Star Trek Online has added to the Pantheon of, of Star Trek, um, whereas all those other licensors, their main job is recreating ships you've seen. But Star Trek Online, we get to actually make new ones, which is really, really great. And uh, then we had a panel with Trek Movie talking about Victory is Life, um, a kind of an inside look at developing Star Trek Online. And we had another Victory is Life panel with uh, Chase Masterson, Aaron Eisenberg, um, Alexander Robinson, Garrick, actually joined us at the last minute for that panel. It was pretty incredible. Um, and uh, Max Grodencheck uh, was also on that panel. So that panel was a ton of fun. It was great to hear the actors all talk about their experience with Victory's Life, bringing their characters to life in the game. And also, they got to react to some of this, the, the work that we had done in the game to, um, with cutscenes and the maps and everything like that. So it's, it's been a really busy week. And then my last panel will be the one you mentioned, Sunday morning with Mary Wiseman uh, kind of talking about being Tilly, bringing Tilly to Star Trek Online. So we're talking now that Star Trek Online is, uh, has already begun doing um, Discovery ships. What is the difference in your process bringing a ship from Discovery into Star Trek Online now? For instance, what do you get from CBS, if anything? Right, and this is, a, this is one of the major differences. When you think about doing uh, ships for DS9, for example, you know, DS9 is uh, 25 years old this year. And so people have been talking about that show, dissecting that show for 25 years. And they're 25 years of fan debate on the internet about this ship and how big it is and whatever. Uh, nothing like that exists for Discovery. So pretty much all the reference we get has to come directly from CBS, which is a huge departure from the way it's been in the past. So they, they sent us some of the actual models used in the show. Now, uh, because those were done by really high-end, you know, special effects houses, the best in the business. Sometimes we have pr problems opening those, parsing those, looking at the textures in those. And so we've relied on other partners like Eagle Moss to send us some of their renders and, and uh, break down some of the models for us to in a way that's easier for us to, to use. Um, but one of the ships I'm working on now, the new uh, Starfleet starter ship for the uh, Starfleet starting experience, I've, I've been able to build the, the Star Trek Online model just kind of right on top of the actual model used in you know shooting for the show, which is pretty incredible to think like it's going to be you know some of the most accurate stuff we've ever done because we have those original models to work with. I wasn't aware that you were working so closely with Eagle Moss on, on the ship designs. Um, tell us a little bit more about that partnership. Well, uh, when we got the assets from CBS, we you know we were looking at them, and and I know I knew that Eagle Moss had just such a much longer lead time than we do because they're making a physical product and so for them to be able to bring that product to market now means they've also had it for you know at least a year um, 
And I also know that with all the, you know, um, I, I subscribe to their, their Starship collection. Nick, uh, the environment artist, Taco Fangs, he also subscribes. And so I love the books they put out, and they always have really nice orthographic renders. And so I just thought, you know, it would be great to reach out to them to get some of those renders that have uh, texture, um, texture information, materials, stuff like that, that we couldn't get from the really uh, complex models that we got straight from CBS. And CBS was more than happy to kind of facilitate us opening up that relationship. And actually, that's sort of one of the things that got the conversation started about Eagle Moss doing the Enterprise F. Um, and uh, you know, and we're really excited about. It. There's going to be another thing coming up soon. I'll tease a little bit. Uh, we're going to do something with them uh, pretty soon, actually, before the end of the month, so people can look out for that. Um, so the Enterprise F is confirmed and will be coming through. They've Eagle announced Moss. it. They've yeah. announced that the, the Eagle Moss is doing an Enterprise F model. They they haven't really talked about any details, and um, you know, who knows what else we might end up doing with them. But and then uh, you're and then you're teased now about something else. Yeah, yeah. Possibly. There's something. It's a. Uh, it's not as exciting as the Enterprise F, but it, it'll. Be, it's a neat thing, and I, I think people will be really happy about it. That the, that should be coming at the end of the month. But you know, they're great partner we love what they're doing obviously star trek online a lot of it is about the ships for a lot of people and eagle moss uh they make great great models of ships and so we're happy to continue to to work with them in, in whatever way we can now on a, on a personal level you know so this year we've seen not only what you were saying with eagle moss and they're doing a star trek online ship or two uh but you've also started doing the 3d printing what is it like for you as a ship artist to then be able to see these digital creations come alive in physical models in the real world? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, I, I think uh, it would cause a temporal paradox if I told my 12-year-old self that this was going to happen because, you know, you would get a heart attack and die and then I don't know what would happen. The universe would implode or something, but uh, it's phenomenal. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's such a great opportunity to be able to hold something that, that you designed in your hands and it's like this is a real thing now and um, you know it's um, I can't really understate how satisfying that is creatively to be able to do that so what are you looking forward to in the coming months for Star Trek Online um, it's uh, you know the age of discovery is, is going to open a lot of doors for us storytelling wise you know being on the cutting edge of what Star Trek is doing right now uh, Star Trek Online has never had that opportunity before you know the game has been around eight and a half years and now, just now, we finally have live TV for Star Trek. And so it's a great opportunity for us to capitalize on that. There are some really cool ship designs. Um, you know, we have the Discovery, Shenju, and the Sarcophagus ship in the game already. And those ships were certainly challenging to get right. And I know that we've got more challenging ship designs on the way. We put the, uh, if people watched the trailer, they saw the Bird of Prey. Like, that's in the game. That wasn't a you know, render of the, the effects model. So we have the bird of Klingon Bird of Prey now, and we'll have more Klingon ships uh, too. So I'm really looking forward to, to just continue to expand, you know, how many Star Trek ships we have in the game, and Discovery is a great resource for that because um, we were running out. <laughs> we were running out of cannon ships to make. This is a really interesting thing to talk about because uh, this era of, of the Star Trek universe, multiverse, we haven't really seen before in Star Trek Online. This is a slightly different time period. So, you know, without going into any details, because I know you can't really, are you having to go back and actually create a whole new set of ships, a whole new look a whole new aesthetic for these ships that are going to be in this adventure uh, absolutely and and you know 
if we say age of discovery and we promise you discovery, it's got to look like discovery. And so in the first, the very first episode of the show, you know, Battle of the Binary Stars, um, I guess the name of the pilot was Vulcan Hello. Is that, yeah. that right? But the, you know, the Battle of Binary Stars happens and there are like 30 ships in that one sequence but, you know, between the Klingon and Federation starships. And we need to add, you know, make all of them eventually, yeah. right? They need to all be in Star Trek Online because we're going to depict that era um, and we want to do it faithfully. So it's pretty incredible. Um, there's a lot of work to do. It's, some of it's very, very complicated. Some of the Klingon ships, obviously the sarcophagus ship, the Bird of Prey was its own challenge. And then we have like some of the Klingon, the Kug class destroyer looks crazy with its like, uh, looks like a big carburetor and all these pipes and stuff and getting that into the game. Uh, but, but it's going to pay off. It's going to look great. It's going to feel great. People are going to you know, when they get in there, they're going to be like, yeah, this, awesome, this feels like Discovery. It looks like Discovery. And we're really excited about that. So I want to roll back a little bit and talk about uh, Victory is Life. And, you know, we've, we've, we've read the blogs. We've heard the stories about uh, how you were able to reach out to Tobias Richter. What was the most exciting aspect of designing for Victory is Life? You know, uh, we have an amazing concept artist named Hector Ortiz, and he's done so much great work through the history of the game uh, ever since he joined back right when we were getting started with Delta Rising. And actually, recently I was looking through some of his drawings for panels I wanted to show uh, this week, and I found the very first ship he did, which is cool. He designed the uh, Guardian um, class cruiser for, victories, or for Delta Rising, uh, but it's still, he's definitely come a long way in... The, the stuff he's done uh, since then and the um, get, making a new aesthetic for the Dominion was a lot of fun just taking the Dominion kind of their their blade shape and their like double pr pronged uh, footprint and updating that for the 25th century um, we enjoy doing that making them a little more feel like military vehicles you know with kind of blunt ends where you could see the exposed weaponry and all that stuff uh, creating the Intel Cardassian ships was also cool because, I mean, that's, you know, hand and glove, right? Like Cardassians and Spycraft, and, and that's just a real natural fit. So getting full Intel chips for the Cardassians made sense. And uh, ship artist Mauricio Tejerina, he concepted those and uh, modeled the ships, and I think they came out really great. But just that's one of the things I love about Star Trek Online in general is taking the story of Star Trek and bringing it 30 years into the future and getting to do that in the, with the ship designs of spinning everything and like how do we advance this you know what has happened what's the, the reasons behind the changes we're making it's always a fun process I actually had another um, discovery question the other the flip side of the things that you do is not only ship design but you are also a lead UI artist and I wanted to talk about uh, if you can tease it all, any kinds of things that we're going to see in terms of the, the change in the UI for Discovery. So whenever we have a new expansion or a, a new faction, that we we see a visual change in the UI that's reflective of, of that part of the story, that piece of storytelling. So what changes are you going through to make that experience sort of immersive for the age of Discovery? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we recently hired a new UI artist to do the brunt of the UI work. Um, she's an industry veteran and she's doing a great job already. Um, and she is working on a new skin for Age of Discovery. So the Discovery starting experience will have a brand new kind of Discovery flavored UI. In terms of how different it is from the other UIs, it's actually probably one of the most different uh, looks to it that we've done because 
again, you ha it has to look like the show, right? So um, uh, traditional cars are, are really flat, and you know we do have color changes and stuff, different corners. But with the Discovery graphics, there are a lot more subtle gradients, some grids, and and um, some other things, so all that's gonna show up in the UI. And uh, she actually just started working on it before I left for Vegas, so I'm excited to get back to the office and see where she's at with it. Uh, but it's gonna be a lot, it's, I think people will really like it. Well, Thomas, this is, uh, is there anything we, that we haven't spoken to you about that you were eager to share with uh, our listeners in Priority One? Talking with Mary Wiseman tomorrow is gonna be a lot of fun. People are gonna see you know, where we're going with Age of Discovery. And just, uh, this is a little different concept from like Seasons where Age of Discovery will start in the fall, but then we're going to keep adding new things to it, and it'll all be part of that one release. Um, and so, you know, this is Age of Discovery is going to last beyond the fall, probably into the anniversary, and maybe even beyond that. And so, um, you know, if we don't get the one thing from Discovery you, you like in the fall, don't worry, we're probably going to get to it uh, eventually as we as we go through it. You know, we have to create a whole new world for Star Trek Online, so there's a lot to do. I, I immediately wanted to solve new world. world. <laughs> well, Thomas, thank you so very much for stopping by. Wait, wait, we wait, look forward. Wait, 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 wait. Oh. We interrupt this broadcast because I want to get Thomas's reaction to this live on the air. They just they just gave us this as a thank you for supporting what? the show. It's the uh, USS Sally Ride. Um, oh, so uh, what's cool. the name of that thing? The plaque from the ship from the plaque. actual uh, from the actual show, and it's autographed by everybody on the back. That is awesome. awesome. Isn't that freaking cool? Congratulations. Wow. Uh, this is Ambassador Kel, by the way, for those of you who don't recognize my voice instantly. Thank you so much. That's so amazing. That's beautiful. All right. I leave you to your regularly scheduled signing off If you had waited, like, two minutes. But I wanted it on the air, Thomas. I wanted it on the air. Don't worry. It's very important to embarrass you on Priority One at all possible. This is the magic of doing a Vegas convention, Captains, because you never know what's going to happen. So, Thomas, thank you so much for stopping by. Congratulations on the plaque there. And congratulations on all your hard work, man. It's well-deserved. And as a friendly reminder, Captains, Thomas was once a player just like all of us. And, uh, I don't know his, if that's a friendly reminder. It's like a cautionary tale, though. <laughs> no, I as, think, as you know, much work right. as he's done this week. Right. right. No, but I think it just goes to show that. Uh, and, you know, same with Sorakata. Uh, you know, you guys are, are passionate fans of Trek, found your calling, and are now producing Star Trek, you know? And so uh, we all start from somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's just you take your passion and you try to figure out a way, how do I manifest this something and in, in, in practice and practice and practice and turn it into a, a skill that people want to pay me for? And then once you do that, you might not get to work on Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever right away, but, you know, you just keep going and keep producing more work. And, um, you know, unless you are very lucky and very talented, nothing happens overnight. You have to, I mean, how Priority One has been on around for a long time and you guys are doing great now with the Roddenberry network and all that and that's awesome but it just it's persistence and um, so just keep at it cool man thank you so much yeah. well captains we are back here again in Star Trek Las Vegas for the 2018 convention and joining us for this interview is Star Trek Online's environment artist Nick Taco Fangs Duguid Nick Thank you for uh, for stopping by, man. Hello. Tell us a little bit about um, your process in, in revamping Deep Space Nine. Uh, <laughs> it's been so long. Um, well, we start with the plans, because there are actually plans for the sets 
at the time. And so we have blueprints basically of the sets in, in the warehouses on the Paramount lot. And we kind of put those into the right scale and then extrude those up and then use that as a baseline to build everything around it. Um, we take a metric buttload of screenshots and find as much other like behind the scenes reference and stuff that we can. And all of that goes into months and months and months of work. How much access did you have to those original blueprints from the set and assets, things of that nature? The blueprints are just online. Like we didn't have to go through CBS or anything to get those. Um, we certainly worked with CBS to get some other behind the scenes kind of photos and things. Um, but even that, a lot of those are like just pictures of people getting makeup or whatever. So there, there's only a handful of those that are really key or helpful in reconstructing the sets. We certainly, you know, we worked with them a lot to get those, their references um, in, but uh, we got a lot of our own reference from the inter internets in general, just like anybody else would. Now, you know, one of the interesting things about Deep Space Nine is um, they would reuse areas and redress them, do something different. Um, Every show did that. In creating a fully immersive Deep Space Nine, how challenging was it to do that, right? To well, we just did the same thing. We we would make one room, you know, we'd make the rough room shape that got reused a bunch, and then we'd you know pop it around into the different positions it needs to be in, and we'd dress it up differently for different places. So and then, but referencing television, referencing yeah, the scene from the, right, from referencing the show. So I mean, the the room that got used the most was what people think of as Garrick's Tailor Shop, mm -hmm. which was also the assay office, which was also the schoolroom, which was also the security holding cells, the, the brig, essentially, um, and a couple other things that I can't even think of right now um, that were used, all used in that same room, and they just redressed the walls and you know, rearranged where the doors were and that kind of stuff. Now, now potentially a stupid question. We already had a Deep Space Nine, so... <laughs> When you were doing this, uh, did you did you use any of the old model, or was this completely from scratch, ground up? It's it's basically from scratch. I think Donnie might have used the old temple, the the sconces that are on the wall outside the temple. Mm -hmm. Those might be the same as the old map. Right. But that's that's like literally it. So com completely start to finish, completely yeah, redone. Pretty much everything else was completely redone. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. The the old one, it was a valiant effort in the days when we had no time to do anything yeah. and um, I always describe it as kind of like a Monet painting or something if you squint from a ways away it all looks like water lilies but if you get up close and you know pay attention to the details it just starts turning into paint, paint blobs yeah um, similarly you know our old DS9 if you just kind of squinted at the screen it sure looked like DS9 it was the right colors and it had the right shapes but they were the wrong sizes and in the wrong places and they were lacking some things and and so and now do you feel like it's a beautiful set of water lilies? Well, <laughs> no, because no artist is ever satisfied with their work. So Fair enough. there's still a lot that I would love to finish or more details I'd like to add or whatever. But it's certainly it's finished to the point that it needs to be finished for, for the game right now. Now, what I understood from the panel was that uh, you busted your butt uh, trying to get operations done. Scheduling something this big is really hard trying to tell how long any given portion of it will take or how to break it up into smaller bites so that you don't have just one giant task that's set for three months. Like, that's impossible. So we did what we could, but 
as we progressed through the timeline, it became pretty obvious that we didn't have enough time to do ops as well. And at that point, the, what, was, what was being described was that we were going to just take the old ops from the old map and we'd put it in, you know, and it's a separate instance, so you're not going to see it right next to, to the promenade or anything, but it just kind of killed my little environmentalist soul. And so, um, I, yeah, I did a lot of overtime late nights and weekends to make ops so that we didn't have to use the old one. Did you also do the outside? I didn't. That was another one that we didn't have time for. And Thomas was um, kind of heartbroken over that. And I mean, I, I really wanted to, but I didn't. I never expected that to be the case, that we would, that we would update the outside. Right. Um, and so Thomas, uh, you know, you've probably heard him say this elsewhere, but like he, he was sitting one night kind of ruefully going through the internet and looking at pictures of DS9 and other people's models and and you know, came across Tobias Richter, and he had done DS9 for, um, I think it's for the documentary that's coming up, right? Mm -hmm. And and a couple other things. And Thomas, you know, kind of spitefully says, "Well, why why can't we just use that one?" <laughs> you know, and then <laughs> and then and then kind of sat there for a second and said, "Why can't we use that one?" And so um, we got in touch with Tob Tobias. I think Thomas was already in touch with him anyway, um, and worked out a deal where. Uh, Tobias and, and his crew, I don't even know how many other people work with them or whatever, but they were able to take the, the high-res detail, high-detailed uh, DS9 model that they had and then make a game uh, passable asset for us. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot higher poly than our old DS9, and it has a lot more details, and it's also a lot closer to canon than, than ours ever was. Um, and so we were... It was kind of a miracle. We just got that at the last minute, and we're like, well, now we're going to do this, and and it worked out. In your redesign for a revamp of Deep Space Nine, did you learn anything from the original set and design that's kind of surprised you? That was like, oh, that's cool. Oh, these <laughs> oh, God, there's a million things. Held it's up been by a gum. while, though. We, we've, been, we've been kicking on uh, Age of Discovery now for a while, so I've already started to lose some of my DS9 knowledge. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of like, they did a lot of set changes. I mean, we've done this every time we've done a, a canon set. You know, we did TNG and we did Voyager. There's always set changes throughout the series. And and so it's always like we have to pick which one we want to make because we can't represent season one D you know, TNG and season seven TNG and everything in between. So we just kind of pick one. And generally we, we err towards the later side of things. But DS9 went under a, a big revamp uh, on the show between season one and two and a little bit further into season two then as well. So there's a lot of things that they, you know, that they got rid of or that they changed completely. And it's interesting just, you know, seeing what those things were and where those things ended up, um, what things got moved around. You know, when you're doing this, it, you know, we, I watch the show a lot to get screenshots and watching the show with a, an eye for the environment is a lot different than just watching the show normally. I've seen all of DS9 multiple times, yep. but you catch totally different things when you're actually looking for, God, I wish they would show the upper right corner of this room because it's never been in any shots and I can't find it. Oh my God, right. it's there. Pause. <laughs> right. you know? right. nice. And so, um, you know, you, you go through a lot of that and, and being very excited about really mundane details. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's mundane details, you know, to the average person who's sitting down and watching the show, yeah. but when it comes to implementing it in something like Star Trek Online, yeah. 
that contributes directly to the immersion and that that world building that's necessary to kind of get you into the game. Yeah. So what are you working on now, Nick? Age of Discovery. <gasps> End of story. Fair that's enough. all I can say. Full yeah. stop. Period. Sorry. Way um, to be cryptic. Always. <laughs> <I>, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I can't talk about it, but it's. I. I. I mean, I think it's probably. There's there's some pretty educated guesses that you could make about that and and our jobs and all of that and what we've done in the past. So um, I can't say what it is, but it's it's turning out great. Good. And you're gonna see it at some point. Yeah, um, and not and and not that long actually. Not that long. Not that long. Yeah. Well, uh, what about here at Star Trek Las Vegas? Has there been something that you've been looking forward to? Uh, something you've done already that you've had? Um, I mean, I'm not on any of the panels or anything, so I'm always just excited to see you guys. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we've been coming for years. The first couple of years that you come to, to a big convention, you're all about seeing all of the truck stars doing their truck things. And then by year three and four, you've heard the same stories a couple of times from them. And it's really more about seeing friends that live around the country that you don't normally get to see, especially all in one place together. Um, so, you know, for me, this is, I mean, we're here for work, but like in terms of enjoyment, it's really more just about hanging out with people that I like and know and don't get to see very often. So I like you too, Nick. Heart <laughs> eyes. <laughs> now, I did want to mention one thing since we've got Nick here. Um, back in July, you came on the show to talk about your experiences with uh, Make Wish oh, America. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if you already knew, but we did meet our yeah, fundraising goal of $1,000. And, um, you know, a big part of that is thanks to you for coming on and sharing your story. And, thanks. of course, thanks to all of our listeners who contributed and, I've and made had, that I've happen. And I've had two people here at the con that actually came up to me and thanked me for the interview that you guys did with me on your show. So, oh, wow. Um, wow. That's great. That's so, great. And then, presume, I, I guess I don't know, but I assume that they also contributed. So. Um, so you guys are doing good oh. stuff too. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Nick, we won't keep you much longer, but thank you so very much for joining us. Uh, we look forward to our conversations with you every year and throughout the year. Uh, and we hope to have you on again once Age of Discovery launches and you can talk to us about your work then. Yeah, man. It'll be fun. Captains, we are still here in Star Trek Las Vegas, and we are currently sitting down with Tim Davies, the lead designer over at Perfect World Entertainment Europe. Now, here's the thing, yeah. is that Tim also goes by Suricata, who is infamous in the Star Trek online community uh, because you, sir, were a player, like anyone else. Yes, and yeah, and I've been with the community since probably, I think it was, what, 2004 when the game was first announced on StarTrek.com. What? I was so yeah. It's, I've, I've been around a while. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about that story, right? Because you're not the only player that ended up being hired by Cryptic, right? You've got uh, Thomas Maroney, Jeremy Randall, and I don't think I've ever heard your story before. Yeah, so it's it's an interesting one. So like, basically, uh, I mean, I've I've been with this community forever. Uh, I helped to moderate the forums with Perpetual back in the day. And then uh, when Cryptic took over, I was also moderating there as well on the ARC channels. And uh, it was kind of interesting back then because, like, you know what it's like when a game's in beta. Everyone's speculating of what's happening. So one day there was a thread where everyone's trying to figure out what are the tiers and what, what rank do I have to be to, to fly the ship. And I was seeing these massive threads and I was like, a picture paints a thousand words, right? So I, I just started one little picture. It took me like an afternoon, which was just side views of the ships uh, and in a CUDA style to try and explain what people can you know, how the ships will be. And everyone absolutely crazy about these ship charts. Right, because it was the ship on its side view, but you yeah. also had, had informed 
the key was how many seats it had, what the weapons were for, you know, for four, for aft, you know, things of that nature, which made it a, a great quick reference guide when yeah. choosing your ship. Yeah, and that was the kind of idea of it. And then, you know, as the ships came more and more, it's like it got more and more difficult to do because like each side you took like two, three hours to draw. And uh, I mean, I was enjoyed doing this. Uh, I did some galaxy maps as well, but the downloads I got on my website was like, it was in the millions. Nice. And, and my website went down. Like usually after a few days, it would go down because of all the hot link and it was just, they were so popular. And I was, I was doing logistics at the time. And I was like, I, I was like, why am I not doing this for a living? It's yeah. like, I, I can do this. So I actually quit my job and went back to university to study uh, multimedia design and concept development. And it was like, because I wanted to work at Cryptic. I'd applied, I saw Thomas Moroni get a job there after he posted on the forums uh, with his all these like, mini game ideas and stuff. And I saw, yeah, I was a big fan of Stoked and saw Jeremy get hired and went over there. So I was like, okay, this is, I can do this. So I went back to university because Cryptic said I needed education. And I, I went back and literally a, a few, about a month or so after I finished the education, I applied to Cryptic again, but they had no positions. But Brandon Feltzer, a lot of old SEO players will remember Brand Flakes. Yeah, some uh, Priority One listeners will probably remember him as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. One there's of the a, original a whole hosts. history yep. there, yeah. yeah. And uh, he recommended a position in uh, Amsterdam. So I had an interview the next day, and two weeks later, I was on a plane to Amsterdam uh, to work at Perfect World. It's uh, a so remarkable it's, story. Man. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy when I meet people because I'm, I'm always trying to explain to people who want to get in the games, and it's just like, if you want to get into it, it's just like, it's, it's not that difficult. You just have to commit yourself to doing it and, and just get the education and, and network. It's, uh, yeah, and, and you can see it with Star Trek Online as well. I mean, we've got everyone that works on that team is like a Star Trek fan. Right. All right. of them. And it's, 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 it's awesome working with everyone because it's just, it's always, yeah, it's, it's fabulous how many people have come from the community there. Uh, we had Rogue Enterprise as well. Do you remember him? He did a lot of Foundry stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He got hired as well? Yeah, well, he actually worked for Perpetual uh, doing QA, and he actually moved over. Then he went to uh, Perfect World. He was working at Perfect ah, World for quite a while. Wow, look at that. It's amazing, you know, how you can, in fact, pursue a dream of working either for, you know, for, yeah. a, a, as a game designer, and then on top of that, uh, for a franchise that we hold so dear to our heart. That's, that's really awesome. It's, it's bizarre. I mean, it is a job, but it's like we, we do a lot of overtime because like when we want something to be good, we, we want to spend the time. And it's, it's just absolutely crazy for me. It boggles my mind that I'm, I'm sending messages to like John Eves and Doug Drexlevy now and again. And it's just, I, I just met John earlier and he's like running over. He's like, hey, Tim. And it's just like, it, it doesn't compute. Yeah. The, I, I feel like an imposter sometimes working mm. on Star Trek Online because right, right. it's like, I didn't work on the series, yeah. but then you come here and it's just like you can see how much Star Trek Online means to people, and it's just like it's it's an imposter syndrome. I think all designers have this in general, but it's just it feels so weird to be part of the the franchise. It's 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 awesome. Well, I can tell you that from a player's perspective, that it's really obvious, and it comes through with Star Trek Online that the people who are developing it really care about the series and really care about the work that they're doing. Talented people uh, doing something they love and coming up with actually. Um, a really great product. And it's a love letter to the series, you know? It really is. Right, 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 right. Oh, yeah, most certainly. So tell us about your kind of your daily job. What do you do with Perfect World? So actually, I don't just work with Star Trek. I, I work with all the different games that Perfect World publishes. I, I work on those. So I work in marketing primarily. So uh, any of the blog posts you see, Ambassador Kyle, uh, he's, he's doing a lot of the images. I do a lot of the images as well, and magazine adverts, videos. But I actually work in localization. So I work primarily on making what's been done for the, the English language and, and translating that to German and French for Star Trek Online and then Italian, Russian and other, other languages and other games. It's interesting. It's not just a copy-paste. This is like, 
there's, there's lots of little variances and understanding how different uh, regions uh, interpret stuff. Especially like German players have a different outlook than English players. So my day-to-day -day basis is literally, yeah, making right. all the marketing assets and trying to get people interested. And how long have you been in the position now? So this is five years now, actually, five nearly. Years. Coming up to five years. I actually came in as a junior. I just wanted to get my foot in the door. And then oh, I've right. kind of worked my way up and now I'm the lead of the department. Wow, so. way to go, man. That's, a, that's yeah. an amazing story. <laughs> it's, it's awesome, yeah. It's, and it's, it's great to finally be at STLV and meet people as well. I mean, some of the guys here, like Nick and Thomas, I met for the first time in January when I flew over to, to go to the office there. But some of these guys, like even seeing you guys as well, it's like yeah. being in Europe, I know your faces, I see you. And it's like to come over here and actually finally meet people, it, it's, it's absolutely awesome. It's, it's so really this is cool. your very first STLV? It is, yeah. Have I've, you been to Destination over in the I've UK? I've been to Destination, yeah. yeah I started doing conventions Germany. about three years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm kicking myself now. Uh, it's like, I, it, it's true when they say it's a family, right? It's like... Yeah. I've been here for five days, well, four days now, and it's just, you start nodding to people and, and waving to people, even the actors as well, like, they start saying hello right, to you and, right. and, and, and actually approaching you instead. It's like, I'm kicking myself, man. I should have been doing this more. And for you as a first-timer here with the, with the development team, what's been the reaction from people who have been coming and playing? What have they been doing? What have they been saying to you? So it's interesting because, I mean, some of the people we get coming have been playing for years and they're just like, blown away especially with the last expansion we did uh, with Deep Space Nine that right. was uh, brilliant for the anniversary you get a few people that have never heard of the game before which boggles my mind because yeah. uh, we've been out for eight years now but but overall like when people see the, the quality of the latest stuff it's uh, we, we get I, I mean the people that don't want to play MMOs they, yeah. they just want to play the game just to walk around Deep Space Nine for hours and, and just look at the, yeah. the sets uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's overwhelmingly positive I would say so what are you working on now? So, the, well, we announced uh, Age of Discovery lately, so we're moving into doing Discovery stuff, which is, I mean, that's a dream come true, right? I mean, before we were working on stuff that was just like, okay, Deep Space Nine is 25 years old now, and we've got to do Deep Space Nine lately and rebuild that. Now I'm, we're in a, a phase where I'm actually working with a license when there is stuff being made. It's awesome. I mean, it must be the same for you guys as well, yeah, being on your yeah. podcast, actually having absolutely, like, absolutely. stuff. It's, it's yep. brilliant. Yeah, 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 so yeah. right now, the Discovery stuff's coming out. I'm not working too much on it right now because workload of other, other titles, yeah. but uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands involved in that. Well, Tim, thank you so much for stopping by. Is, thank you. Is there oh, yeah. anything that we didn't talk about that you were kind of excited to, to, to share with our community? Oh, oh, we could talk for hours, man. <laughs> fair enough. Fair it's just enough. great to finally meet you guys, man. Me it's great to talk to all the listeners as well. So. Me too. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. Yeah, well, you're most welcome. Well, Captains, we are here today with Ryan Levitt, content designer for Star Trek Online. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Totally. I love it. Uh, how, are you, how are you enjoying the convention so far? Uh, well, you know, it's unconventional. No, it's actually extremely conventional. I love it. It's great. I'm, yeah. I'm having an absolute blast. The best thing about coming to these conventions is that you get to actually just meet the people face to face. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you, know, you read the forums and you're never really sure, like, if people are are being honest, if yep. it's just like, a, you know, if you're hitting a vocal minority or whatever. But, you know, when the people are actually coming up to you and saying, you know, what they think, it's it's just something very pure about that. Well, it's funny you say that because we actually just pulled you away from the booth. You were actually giving some demonstrations <laughs> to people that were coming over mm -hmm. and playing the game. So tell us quickly what's going on in the booth. You've got things that people can come in and play and have a little experience for themselves. Yeah. So uh, we, we have a demo set up. We have, we have two machines uh, where you can play as any of the five factions mm -hmm. currently in the game, including the Jemadar from Victory's Life. Each one you can go through their kind of their tutorial experience, um, as well as a few uh, missions after the tutorial. Mm -hmm. And you know we've just been letting people have fun, do the character creation, and see how far they want to go. 
because I think STO is kind of a game that you're never really sure if, if, you, if it's for you until you've actually, you know, yeah. you've tried it out. Now, yesterday, you actually had a very special person who came and tried the game out. And I know you're nerding out about this, like, hardcore right now. So, I'm totally. so tell us who it was and tell us about the experience. All right. So it was uh, Andrew Robinson, who is the uh, actor who plays uh, Garrick in DS9. You know, we had him do voice work for Victory's Life, and uh, we were able to find him here on the floor and tell him, you know, hey, people have been really resonating with your character in the game. Yep. Uh, would you like to come and see kind of the final result? Because the voice actors don't really get to see what happens unless uh, someone kind of sends them like footage. So, you know, they, they, they do the voice, and then that's kind of it for them. Yep. Uh, so he's like, yeah, I want to come and see it. So we brought him over. I, I ran him through some parts of uh, the search. Uh, the uh, third uh, mission in the uh, Victory's Life expansion, and we got to show him the uh, cutscene of Kira slapping Odo, nice. which is a fantastic cutscene. <laughs> the slap heard round the quadrant. Oh, I think it was around the whole galaxy. Uh, true. It was true. really, a, it was quite the slap. Um, and and what's awesome is like there's that one moment where right after the slap, uh, Garrick smiles. Yeah. And and Andrew <laughs> just kind of turns. I was like, yeah, Garrick liked that. Yeah. And it's really cool. Like, you know, I actually asked him, like, you know, did we did we do you justice? He's like, you got all the mannerisms. Like, it just, it was like watching me on TV. And yeah. there's something just absolutely amazing about that. It was really cool, and I am totally still geeking out about that. Yeah, you deserve it, man. You deserve that that recognition and that that Thank accolade, you. man. I mean, your uh, the big mission that you worked on. Among others, uh, the one that got probably the, mo the most amazing reviews was Quark's uh, Lucky Seven. Yep. Tell us a little bit about w designing that, the genesis of that, the, the you know what it took to to create. So, you know, we knew we wanted to do a DS9 expansion, and we knew we wanted to try and get as many of the actors as we could, and that meant we wanted to get you know we wanted to get Aaron back, we wanted to get Chase back, and we wanted to see if we could get uh, Max and and Armin and and Jeffrey Combs. So. That meant, you know, we needed to have something for them all to do. It, you know, we're, we, we don't want it to be a waste of their time. So we started thinking about, well, let's do a Ferengi episode. And we knew that kind of one of the big MacGuffins of Victory's life is getting the sort of Kaelas to help bring the uh, Klingons into the war. And, you know, we know that the Herc have some sort of connection with the sword because they had it. And we know that... Tiket currently has the sword because she murdered the clone of Kalos. So it was just a matter of kind of like, let's bring it all together. And, you know, we could have obviously had a mission where the player goes just and, and fights their way through an Iconian ship and does it. Yep. But how much cooler would it be to have the Ferengi doing it? But of course, you know, the Ferengi are not like total badasses, except for maybe Lek. So we couldn't just send them to do a regular combat mission, they would have gotten stomped. Yeah. And it doesn't make any sense either. No, it doesn't you make any sense. You don't send a bunch of Ferengi in to, you know, do a tactical um, right. removal of a battle. So we had to make it into a heist. Yeah. Um, and, and kind of as we were thinking about it, it came to a life of its own. Like, it just, you know, like it became more and more like an Ocean's Eleven style movie. And we wanted to make sure we try to hit as many tropes as possible of... You get to see it from the different perspectives of each of the, the players. You know, something will go wrong, but actually everyone had planned for that thing to go wrong, so it turned out that it was actually supposed to go that way. There's the, did we actually lose? Like, no, we didn't actually lose. And um, 
it was just a really a cool thing to try and design. One of the things that was just really challenging about it is that we wanted to use our, our, our B Critter tech to let you actually play as the characters, but it's kind of, I mean, we, we did it a bit with Renegade's Regret, but this was kind of like our first really major use of it, and historically, players are adverse to change. You know, when they, when they find the formula of what they like in a game, change scares them. We, we've seen it with like Legend of Zelda when it shifted to 3D. You know, we've seen it with Metroid when it switched to 3D. So a big change is always a, a scary thing to do. And th so this was a really risky episode. And pretty much right from day one, I knew this was going to be an episode that either people loved or they would hate. And I'm really happy that it turns out that, for the most part, it's been loved. So let's talk a little bit more about the development of the, dif the different styles of gameplay. Because traditionally, I would say most Star Trek Online missions are relatively formulaic. Mm -hmm. And this one really departed from that a lot. So Definitely. Uh, instead of go to point A and shoot something and go to point B and shoot something, there was an element of puzzles. And there was an element of um, sort of sneaking, which we don't get an awful lot of in Star Trek Online. Mm -hmm. What was your process in deciding what mechanic was going to go into which section? And then how did you make that happen uh, within the game? So when the idea of the episode was first kind of pitched to me, that then I kind of have to write my own pitch of like kind of like the micro step-by-step -step of how the game goes on, we wanted to make sure that every character felt different. You know, you were going to be playing six different people throughout this mission. Yep. Um, seven if you, if you count your ship. Yep. But, I mean, I think you and your ship are kind of the same person. So um, we want to make sure that every single person you play as feels different. Right. So then it came down to what are the defining characteristics of each character. Okay. Chase is extremely charismatic. Yep. So, I mean, sorry, Lita is extremely charismatic. Well, both of them are charismatic. <laughs> yeah, Lita is extremely charismatic. Yeah. Rom is this incredible engineer who knows the station like the back of his hand. Yep. Lek is an assassin. Yeah. Quark is extremely clever. He can talk his way out of anything. Yep. But he's also, you know, he is good at getting things done. And then, of course, we have Nog, who's Starfleet trained, extremely capable in combat, trained as an engineer by his father. Like, he's kind of like, you know, the jack of all trades, right? Yep. So, and then, of course, there's the player who has an awesome ship, presumably, and uh, and is kind of bringing it all together. So we wanted to make sure that each piece felt like that it was built for the, for that character. Right. So that's why, you know, we made sure that we, we put more puzzles in for the Ferengi because... That's what they do. They they use their they, they use their their massive heads yeah. in order to to think through a problem. But at the same time, one of the big keys of every Ferengi episode of DS9 is how they kind of stumble their way into success. Yeah. Like they're accidental yeah. like victories. So we also wanted to make sure we got that across. And I think you know, we did the most of we did most of that with Lek, uh, yeah. where you know he all he wanted was just to blow just up. Just wanted to blow something just up. Just blow up one thing, <laughs> and it just you know it took him like his entire section to do that. Yeah. And I know a lot of people's favorite Lek moment is the uh, the glasses uh, slow slow motion walking mm -hmm. away from explosions. Yep. That's an awesome moment. Which was yes, it yeah. was awesome. But my actual favorite Lek moment is at the very end when when Quark and. Uh, Nog are running away, and there's an explosion, and Quark gets sent flying, 
and Lech just gets excited about it because <laughs> it's like, look, another explosion. We finally got one. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't know if that comes across as much to people, but mm -hmm. I think it's just such a great Lech moment where it's just like something just he, he seems so satisfied, even though it's, it's hurting his own team. Yeah. Yeah. He got the effect he was looking for. So I, I always love that moment. Um, and, and a lot of that really comes down to amazing, amazing animation uh, by our animator, uh, Weston yeah. Pierce. Absolutely top notch. Like I mean, throughout the entire expansion, his his like the facial expressions he did, like the new custom animations that he did, uh, all the camera work he did were just so on point um, that it just made it so easy to tell the stories that we wanted to tell. So the Stargaze uh, on Twitter asked, "Will we see more of the beloved Ferengi characters in future episodes?" I, I don't see any reason why we wouldn't want to do that. It's just a matter of making sure that it makes sense for whatever we're trying to do. We don't want to do it too often because then it will kind of uh, muddy the waters. But, you know, we love working with all of them and they're super professional, um, super amazing. So if we can if we can come up with a, a an appropriate storyline for them, we would love to have them all back. Now, what, what we have been receiving is uh, a lot of praise. Folks like Mark Poolman uh, on Twitter, I have no questions. That's how good the mission was. All I, all I want to say is thank you for that amazing mission. Thank uh, you. R.G. Bodane writes in, with a few noticeable exceptions, I was one of those who never liked the Ferengi. This entire mission changed my mind about them. Oh, thanks. So. Yeah, I, I have to say that I'm kind of with them. I mean, I it's well documented, the, the, the journey of the Ferengi as a species race um, through TNG, how they were initially meant to be a villain and then they kind of got turned into bumbling idiots um, and then they sort of grew a lot during Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought this episode was really great in the way that you used game mechanics to advance those individual characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I even in compared to DS9, I, I made them a bit more competent than... Uh, Right. than the show generally has. But I also tried to, you know, harken back to a lot of the great Ferengi moments, like like the whole thing of, you know, where's Gala? It's like, well, he's not invited. He shot the hostage last time. Like, <laughs> like if you've watched Magnificent Ferengi, you know exactly what that's talking about. Yeah. Um, I tried to throw in as many of the rules of acquisition as possible. There had to be a Moogie. Yeah. You know, like, it's just, these are, these are the rules when writing uh, for Ferengi. So, uh, and I got to make up my own rule of acquisition. Yeah. I got to come up with, you know, the, the rule zero of uh, what the Grand Nagus wants, we acquire. Yeah. Oh, I, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am disappointed in the, the lack of a Ferengi love dance. This I'm, is going back a couple seasons, but... Well, do we remember? do have that as an emote in our game. Well, I know, but I, I just, you know... If you want to make a Ferengi character, play through the mission, yeah. and then at the very during the last act, do the, the dance to, to them, you're more than welcome. Okay, I might have to try that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Ryan. I appreciate you coming, uh, coming to talk to us about Quark's Lucky 7. It was... Uh, definitely my favorite of the whole series, Mine and um, I'm so pleased to see that uh, the players have really loved it as well. So and Trust uh, me, you, uh, you are, there's no one more excited than I that the players have really <laughs> been loving it. Now we'd be uh, negligent if we didn't ask you, what's coming up with Discovery? So pretty much everything that I would say has already been said during the Thursday's uh, announcement. So really, everything beyond that, you're going to have to wait till the sun, our Sunday uh, panel at 
with uh, Mary Wiseman to be able to actually find out. Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. I'll be there. <laughs> we hope so. Like you were at my panel this morning? He's salty, guys. He's salty. <laughs> well, Ryan, thank you so much for stopping by, and I'm thank sure so it won't be the last me. time that we'll have you on. Captains, we are honored to have Andrew Robinson, who plays Elam Garrick in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Now, this is a very special interview because he just had the opportunity of playing himself in Star Trek Online. Mr. Robinson, please t tell us about that experience right now, watching yourself and hearing your own voice. It's an awesome process. I mean, I think that the, the graphics worked. It has a cinematic quality to it. I mean, a really, I mean, extraordinary visual quality. And, uh, and, and my voice put together with what the artist has, has rendered, you know, the, 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 the physical character of, of Garrick and the mannerisms and the behavior, it's extraordinary. Right, 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 right. Now, talk to us about getting back in the shoes of Elam Garrick, you know, at, at reprising the role here in Star Trek Online. What was that like? Well, you know, I, I have to tell you that I'm, I, I was very smart this time. Years ago, I was asked to do a, a voiceover for Garrick on something. I can't remember what it was. And I thought I could just waltz in there and do it. And I found that I couldn't come up with the voice. I couldn't come up with the intonation or, you know, the, the, the diction. And, uh, and I drove the guy crazy who was running it. And so this time, I made sure that I prepared myself. Right. So I watched several episodes okay. of, of the show, which I was glad to do. And I got myself into Garrick's head. So, I mean, when I walked in there, I was, I, w I was there, I was in it, and I, f I found him. And it sounds like it, because one of my favorite characters on Deep Space Nine is Elam. Now, I am on record to say that Deep Space Nine tends to be my least favorite of the series, but your character is so complex, and you delivered him with such nuance as an actor, that your craftsmanship for that role was, was phenomenal, especially behind all that makeup. So it was great to be able to join you, so to speak, in the game right. Um, right. and partner with the character. Yeah. When you had the script in hand, when you read it, what, what was provided to you, were there, did you have any like revelations? Did you have anything that you said, ooh, the, maybe not this way. Elam may not say it this way. How about another way? No, I, I had to go along with the, what the writers had written. And plus, I had no time. I, I, they gave me this, this sheaf of, of text. Yeah. And, and I thought, oh, they're going to give me some time to sit down and read it over. And they said, okay, let's go. So we kind of, it was really done, you know, I mean, without me preparing what was written. Right. But the thing is, is that it's different from the show right. because there are different writers. Right. And, and there's a different purpose to this. Yes, of course, of course. Because of its intent, its story. Right. So I just, I just went with it. But I mean, going with it as Garrick, just as Garrick in a different situation. Right. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you had noticed this or if they pointed it out to you, but they managed to program a degree of animation that captured some of your nuance, your facial nuances. Yes. I don't know if you noticed I, I that. No, I did notice that. And uh, it, it was remarkable because my understanding is that the, the game developers... That almost happened accidentally. It wasn't. It's not choreographed, so to speak. Right. That's being generated naturally, but it just goes so well with your delivery in the game. Well, obviously, they knew the character yeah. before they started, yeah. and, and that's evident. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about you know celebrating the anniversary of Deep Space Nine. You know. How well, that's you? what we're here for. Yeah. You know, in in Las Vegas, and you know the thing is that I love this character, and I loved playing him. I hated the makeup, but 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 playing the character, and you know, more than compensated for that. And after after a while, I would forget about the makeup when I got into the, the, the action of, of, of Garrick. So, I mean, for me, it's, it's heartening to see how 
over the years that the show has gained in popularity. And I think that it's beginning to get its, its due yes. recognition and respect. Yes. Because unlike you, it is my favorite show. <laughs> you know, honestly. And it really yes, is. And, yes. it, and it is because I'm a complicated person. And I do believe, you know, in terms of my acting, I do believe in ambiguity. Right, right. I do believe in subtext. Yes. Subtext going against the text. Yes. In, in, the, in the character's dynamic. Right. And, of course, with Garrick, that's fabulous right. because you never know whether he's telling the truth or not. Right, right, which is, right. And having that kind of su subtext is always a fabulous thing for an actor. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing. Yeah. But I also think that the, the writers, you know, I mean, that's what they did with the entire show. So that all the characters, there is like, there's a certain amount of, it, it's, they're not black and white. There's a grayness to it. So there is a darkness right. to, the, to the show, which I think went against the, the Star the grain. Trek grain a bit. But I think that was good. I yeah. think that was healthy for the franchise, yes. Yes. rather than it just being one night stands on, on a planet, you yes. know, uh, with, with, each, with, with each episode and having the good guys being good and the right. bad guys being bad. Right, right. And I think one of the reasons why the show is gaining in, in popularity is because it's falling into line with the narrative of shows that are on television right. today. Right, this long-form story, and serialized exactly television. Right, right, yeah. right, right. I may have watched Deep Space Nine, perhaps I was a little too young. So I've been re-watching, I'm in season four now, and I mean, there, you know, as, as has been said before, Star Trek's first, always, first few seasons is getting its footing. But even in those first seasons, I mean, you had some stellar performances in season one, season two. It is absolutely growing on me for the gray area that you just described. Yeah. And as I have to admit, as a fellow actor, I appreciate that as well, being able to kind of read between the lines and see, for instance, your character's nuances. What is truth? What is a lie? What, you know, right. How can it be manipulated? You know, like for instance, in the second, you mentioned the first couple of seasons. My favorite episode is in the second season, The Wire. And The Wire, which is basically about Garrick's drug addiction. Right. And right. then, and then right. even with that, even when he's under incredible emotional, psychological, physical yes. duress. Yes. He's contradicting himself. He's right. telling all kinds of stories because of that training of his, right. you know, you know, as as um, as a, a spy, right, right, really. Right. And you know, he's covering himself, but covering himself in in a bizarre kind of right. way. Right, right, right. And for me personally, it was the kind of acting that I was enormously proud of. Oh yes, yeah, you should be absolutely. And I've never done, quite honestly, better acting in my life. And I've had a lot of, you know, opportunities. Right, you know. Right. So for my last question to you will be, for actor to actor, what role haven't you played? It could be anything, Shakespeare to contemporary, that you would love to sink your teeth into. Oh, my God. That's, that's, that's a hard one. Okay. You know, it, it, really, it really is. How about farce? I, I, uh -huh. How about a farce? What if you give me a farce? I, uh, you know, a farce. I love comedy. Okay. I, absolutely. And I don't, get enough to, you know, I don't get enough chance to do farce and comedy. I've gone back to acting because I've just retired from teaching. I've been teaching at the University of Southern California for the last 14 years. Okay. I've left there and I'm going back to acting. Good so God willing and the damn don't burst there'll be more opportunities to, to find those characters. We look forward to it, absolutely. Well, Mr. Robinson, thank you so very much for thank joining you, me. Thank you, It's a pleasure. Take care. And, Captains, I have the distinct pleasure of standing here with Cadet Sylvia Tilly. Mary Wiseman. Mary, thank you so much. That was a wonderful panel. It was an honor to be able to do that with you. Oh, so nice. You're such a great moderator. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I'm, 
from from an aspiring actor to 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 someone who has made it. I mean, you just finished Juilliard, what, two two years ago, from my understanding? Three or four, actually, now, which is crazy. It feels like yesterday. And what what's that journey been like? I mean, it's it's oh, so it's, it's so wild, and it's such like um, it's such a. I mean, I was like, my dream was doing Shakespeare regionally. Um, which would have been like a beautiful life that I would have really enjoyed, but I got to do this. I get to be in Star Trek, this like major platform, and it's um, exceeded all my expectations. So I'm in like trying to live in a constant state of gratitude, right, you know, right, right. for that for that opportunity. And I know we can't talk much uh, about what's coming up, but it's also exciting to know that you're getting your own uh, little mini story arc. Yeah, I'm so excited. Is there anything you can say share that might be? Um, about the short? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, oh, I, well, I can say that I meet a new friend, and we both learn from each other. Awesome. So does that tell you what you need to know? No, but that's great. That's okay. That's more than, that's more than enough. Good. I think you'll love it. We had a great director. Maya was amazing. Uh, it was such a, a fun experience, and I think everyone will really enjoy it. It's funny and heartfelt, just like Dilly. Oh, that's, that's, that's remarkable. Now, uh, you mentioned that you have a passion for stage work as well. Do you think you'll go back every once in a while? Oh, yeah. I really want to. Um, it's all about timing, but I have been doing theater my entire life. That's really the core of our training at school, and... Um, it's uh, it's my favorite medium, and I love it so much, and I can't wait to get back. Is there a particular role that you're, you're just dying to do? There are so many. Where do you want me to start? Uh, how about a farce? A farce? Um, well, I want to play Rosalind um, in As You Like It. I want to play... I mean, that's not really farce, but it is has a real comic Shakespeare. Um, I've played, actually, like a ton of farce roles, so actually, I mean, maybe something different, you know? Maybe mix right. it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about dramatic? Huh? What about dramatic? Um... I want to do Sam Shepard. I want to do Pinter. I want to do. I just want to. I honestly just like if somebody has a part, I'll take it. Well, you know what? I'm 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 over in New York, and I am hoping that I can catch you on stage one oh, day. Oh yeah, well, I'll let you know. All right, I appreciate it. Is it set? Oh yeah. Oh yes. Oh yes. Well, thank you so very much, Mary. I wish you the best. Thank you. Safe travels back to Toronto, thank and you. I look forward to uh, all your work. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much. Well, that wraps up episode 377 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log, Women at Warp, and The Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. But we can't forget to send a special thanks to our Patreon supporters, Jim DeVico, Navy Boats Lou, Joshua Selig, Diana Gunter, Peter Archibald, Starkicker, and David S. We're also going to give you a community question this week. Did you enjoy our coverage from STLV 2018? What was your favorite part of convention announcements? Is Old Man Picard something you're looking forward to? Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or tweet us via at Priority One Pod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11 p.m. Eastern. Just keep an eye on our social media channels for those details. 
And if that wasn't enough, be sure to spend time with Admiral Winters and the Priority One Armada on Saturday nights. Saturday nights, the Armada takes to our Twitch channel, where they review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as spotlight some of the amazing members in our community. Each week, we team up with you, the viewers, and earn things like Reputation Marks and Dilithium. With regular giveaways, there is something for all Stow players, new and old. Follow us on twitch.tv forward slash Priority One. And if you'd like to join the Armada, visit PriorityOneArmada.com. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through Patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at Patreon.com forward slash Priority One. And even if you can't make a financial contribution, you can help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support, Captains that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions Guard Frequency Podcast at GuardFrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons & Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. Thanks to our audio editors, including Brandon Parker, Ben Churchill, Anthony Cox, Jake Morgan, and Michael Winters McDonald. Thanks to producer Jake Morgan for assisting in the writing of our show and social media endeavors. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Thanks to Patreon associate producers, Navy Boats Lou and Jim DeVico. But most importantly, Captains, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community, our listeners and our friends. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Engage! Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network